Please remain standing as you are able for our gospel reading this morning from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and you can find it in the Pew Bible on page 1245. Hear now the gospel of the Lord. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so I was, I was wondering, <clears throat> how much it costs to have a baby today? Does anybody know the, I know somebody has the answer right here. Uh, have the bills come yet? You know, the bills aren't here yet. Well, I was thinking about all that, all that goes into having a baby today and, and how much preparation it takes and how much it costs us to have babies today compared to the story we just heard. So just to give you some rough estimates this morning, medical costs are going to run about ten dollars to $15,000, depending on your insurance. Uh, child care, if you're looking at six months of child care, you get maternity, paternity leave, and then you do six months of child care the first year, you're going to be looking at, this includes diapers, wipe, all that other stuff, ten dollars to $12,000. And then all the equipment you have to buy. How, what, what kind of equipment do you have to buy to have a baby these days? Crib, what else? Pack and play. What? Car seats. Yeah, and they keep getting souped up, I've noticed. Uh, what else? Stroller, right? So, and that equipment can run anywhere from four dollars to $5,000. But if you want to spend a little extra money, you know, all that's about $30,000. But if you want to spend a little extra money, you could buy the Stokey, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing this right, Explorey Stroller. This one right here for $1,200. And this would jack up your cost a little bit. It's got an umbrella on it in case the sun is in the child's eyes. It actually reclines and goes up and down so you could feed the child. And, out, and it's up higher so you don't have to bend over and hurt your back to grab the child out of the stroller. You know, all the modern conveniences for the parents and the child. So that's $1,200. I also found a crib that you could purchase called the Vetro Acrylic Crib for $4,500. And I noticed that I went with the Christmas colors. I had a red stroller and a green crib mattress. But this is, I don't advise you buying this crib, not because of the cost, because there are times when you want your kid to not be able to see you. You want to see them, but you don't want them to see you. This doesn't work for that, right? Can, can I get a witness from parents here today? You don't want your, you want to be able to see that your kid is there, but you don't want to, them to see that you're there because you know that's going to be another hour or so. But I think about all this stuff that we have to get now, all this stuff that we have to prepare, and all these costs that go into having a baby. I wonder how much it costs for Jesus to be born. Zero. In fact, maybe not exactly zero, but, you know, I think about Jesus' birth, and he didn't have a donkey seat. You know, Mary didn't have a donkey seat to put for Jesus in on the way home. He, had not, he didn't have a $4,500 crib. What did he have? He had a feed trough for a crib. Have you ever seen animals eat? Anybody ever been on a farm? 
I've seen cows eat. They slobber a lot. That's where Jesus was laid. That was his crib when he was born. The baby monitor, his baby monitor, probably some animals, some sheep, some goats, some donkeys, right? And his first outfit were strips of cloth. Think about that. And the thing about, I think, the reason that God sent Jesus 2,000 years ago because it was a lot cheaper. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> God's kind of frugal that way. No, I'm kidding. But, but God had a timing to this. There was, there's a simplicity to the birth of Christ. And I think there's something about the simplicity of this birth. There's something about the simplicity of the incarnation, right? So this manger, this crib is a manger. It's a feed trough. It's what they had. It's what was available to them. They didn't have to go anywhere else. And this strips of cloth were actually significant because uh, if you were from a wealthy family, you would have very nicely embroidered strips of cloth and you would have strips of cloth that, that showed signs of your status in the world. But Mary had simple strips of cloth that she probably brought with her from Nazareth after that 80-mile journey. And think about that. That simplicity is that that simplicity reveals to us this, that the, this reveals the simplicity of God. That when God wants to act and when God wants to do something in the world, notice it doesn't cost a lot of money. Notice that it, it's very simple. Some of the simple things are the things that God works through and works in. And the incarnation reveals the simplicity of God. And yet we live in this world that is not simple. Not because God didn't make it simple, it's because we complicate it. We're the ones that drag the stuff in and all the other things in because we are disordered. As we've talked about earlier, we have this disordered heart that we're wrestling with and struggling with. And so how do we get back to the simplicity of things? How do we get back to simplicity? I was thinking about this and it's Thomas Merton. If you're not familiar with Thomas Merton, Thomas Merton is a monk, uh, the Benedictine monk and of the Cistercian order, which really don't need to know too much about. But, it, but one of their focuses as an order, is simplicity. And Merton said, seek him in the simplicity of your heart. That if you want to experience simplicity, if you want to experience the simplicity of the soul, that you and I have to start here on the interior of our lives to find simplicity. <laughs> but what do we tend to do as human beings? We tend to look for stuff to fill us, to feed us, right? <laughs> the manger of our hearts, the manger of our souls, the feed trough of our souls, we look outside of ourselves to feed ourselves and we go after all this stuff and all these things and we become very fragmented because we have not dealt with the simplicity that needs to live here in us. Simplicity starts on the interior, with the interior life, with the soul. So I've started thinking about, you know, what are the, some of the signs of the fragmented heart that we have we have fragmented our lives and fragmented our hearts. And some of the ways we've done that, first of all, is these signs of a fragmented heart. The first one is fragmented relationships. Let's review social media again. I mentioned this before. Who has a Facebook account? How many friends do you have on Facebook? The, you don't have to answer. The average number of friends that a person has on Facebook in America today is 338 Facebook friends. You guys are doing a great job keeping up with 338 people, right? Now, if you have a Facebook account, how many people have, people have a Twitter account? Twitter account. Sorry, I call it the Twitter. You're on the Twitter, right? So you got that, and then you got people you're connected with on that. How many people have Instagram, right? All right. 
How many people have Snapchat? Come on, young people. I know there's some young people, Snapchat. So am I missing any? LinkedIn, yeah, right, for the networking, right? So if you were to add up all those connections, social media connections, how many do you think you would have? If you've got 338 on Facebook alone. See, what's happened to us in our society is we fragmented our relationships. Do you see that? Can you see that now? See, what we do is we, we feel that we think that quantity <laughs> is what it's all about. And if I can main, get as many of these connections as possible, that somehow I'll be important, significant, right? Because we're searching for something inside of us. We're searching and longing and hungering for something. But what we've done is we've made our relational connections, as we've said before, a mile wide and not even an inch deep. We are not able to go into community and go in deep with relationship because we're too busy trying to manage all the relationships that we have. So we fragment ourselves, our time, our energy. The other thing we do is we, frag we have fragmented interests. Think about all the different interests that you have. I'm a learner. I love to learn. So, and I've, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. I've got lots of interests. I like to learn lots of different things. But sometimes those interests become part of my fragmentation. I went uh, snowshoeing for the first time in the Cascades Friday. And I got home and I thought, oh, there's, this is a whole new world that's opened up to me, right? There's a whole new interest I haven't pursued. And so I'm starting to think about this new interest. But not only have I thought about that, but I'm thinking snowshoeing. I got to buy some snowshoes. I got to buy some poles. Oh, wait, I need some cross-country skis, some new boots. I now need a four-wheel drive vehicle. <laughs> right? Do you see, what's hap see what happens? And I have lots of interests in, in my life, and I'm learning lots of things, and I'm always gravitating to different things, but part of that is defragmenting. So what I've become is, the old saying is, you become a jack of all trades and master of none because of our fragmentation. But the other thing, and I hate to bring this up today, I know it's Christmas Eve, <laughs> is our fragmented spending. How often do we just fragment our spending? I mean... You do realize, you already know this, but when you go into the stores to shop, they have placed certain products in your past so that you will buy them. They, this is psychology, this is marketing psychology that's at work, and they're hoping you're going to get this impulse to buy that thing, and you'll spend whatever money it costs to do that, and then their, our spending becomes not planned, thought out, it becomes fragmented, it becomes spontaneous, and what are we trying to do? Why are we trying, what are we trying to fill our lives with? stuff. We think that by filling our lives with more stuff that somehow we'll be content or fulfilled or satisfied. And yet really what we're doing is just fragmenting ourselves even further. And then we try and manage our relationships and our interests and our finances and all these things. And we, we try and manage these fragmented lives, never realizing that what really needs to happen is here interiorly in the soul that where we really need Christ to come and be laid is right here, in us. That this Savior needs to be in us. And simplicity calls us to this one singular person and this one singular purpose, and that's following Jesus. What if your whole life was built around the simple truth of being a follower of Jesus? What would that do to your spending? What would that do to your relationships? What would that do 
to your interests and where you spent your time and your energy and how would that bring wholeness to our lives? If we made Jesus the one that we laid in our souls, that following Jesus was the singular focus. You know, Hebrews 12 said, and some of you know this, it said this, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What was Hebrews saying? He's saying have a singular focus, have one simple purpose and person that your life is built around, built around following Jesus. So if you were to do that, if you were to make it that simple, How would that impact our relationships, our spending, our interests? Well, I think simplicity actually calls us to defragment our lives. You remember, does anybody remember uh, Windows PCs, the disk defragmenter? Does anybody, am I going too far back? Remember when you had to defrag your computer, right? Notice that even computers need to be defragmented. Did you notice that? You know, they have to be organized and ordered. They have to be simplified so they can keep up with everything, right? So they had to, and where does that happen to a computer? Internally. This disk defragmenter goes to work. I don't know if you still have to do that. I haven't done it for years, so I'm assuming it's okay. But this, this, we have to do the same thing with our lives, with our souls. So the first thing I would suggest to you in terms of defragmentation defragging some things out of your life was to defriend toxicity. Maybe you need to go through some of your social media accounts and start to defriend people because they're toxic. You know what I'm talking about? That, that when you read their posts or their feeds or their <laughs> tweets, that you just, it just, what does it do inside of you? Maybe it's toxic. Maybe it's abusive. And I think we have to defriend detoxicity. And I think that if you have people that are abusive in your life, you ought to probably defriend them. Not because we're not called to share Christ with them, but if they are toxic, if they are abusive, if they are volatile, then maybe there's a time where Jesus said, if they don't, if you speak peace, remember Jesus said, if you speak peace and that peace returns to you, stay with that relationship, but if you speak peace into that house and there's no peace return, what did Jesus say to do? Shake the dust off your feet and leave. There are friends that we probably need to defragment our lives and stay focused on those places where God has called us to relationship built around our following of Jesus. I would say the other thing is we might need to decrease our interests. (laughs) We need to like bring them down, hone them down, and maybe we need to focus on interests that we can actually begin to move towards mastery of, but I would say choose those interests that feed your soul. Choose those interests that help you follow Jesus rather than those interests that maybe take you away from Jesus. And there are desires and interests in our lives that take us away from God and take us away from following Jesus, and we need to decrease those. We need to get rid of those. You know, one of the things that I took on as an interest was nature photography. And why did I do that? Because I like, I learned photography as an interest, but also because when I, I only do, and I tell my family all this all the time, they know the answer to this. They know I don't do people. 
I say, I, di- I didn't do photography to do people because then every, when people realize you f- do photography, they go, oh, can you take the family Christmas picture? Oh, can you take this family picture? Can you come to our wedding and take pictures? Can you do this? And I go, I don't do people. Not because I don't like people, but there's something about nature photography that helps me to get reconnected to God. You see how that works? I have an interest that connects me to God because in nature, I capture pictures that help me remember the fingerprints of God within creation. The other thing I would say is we probably need to declutter our lives. Now, I realize I'm saying this on the eve of Christmas. (laughs) I I can't imagine what it's going to look like tomorrow morning. As we bring the stuff around the tree and the wrapping and the wrapping papers everywhere and the stuff's everywhere. But I want you to think just the next day after Christmas. What would it look like to declutter? Get rid of things that you no longer need that might help somebody else. What would it look like to do that? You know, I, was, uh, I taught as an adjunct professor at Wesley Seminary in Washington, D.C., and I was teaching a preaching class. And one of the students in the class preached a sermon in class and we were evaluating his sermon and he preached a sermon about simplicity. And in his sermon, he, he, was, using, uh, his, he was using himself as an example and he said, you know, I, I was counting the number of shirts I have. So he had gone through his closet and his, his dresser and he had counted all the ch- shirts that he had. And his, his number, the number of shirts that he had as a young seminary student was 78 shirts. Oh, wait, just, just hold on, folks. Because that's exactly what I thought as I listened to the sermon, right? I thought to myself, this guy's got a problem. <laughs> I thought to myself, he's a hoarder, right? So what am I doing? I'm not, I am actually judging him, right? Even though as he's confessing the truth about his life, about this. And so he says, I've got 78 shirts. I realize I don't need 78 shirts, How is this helping me live a simple life? And so he began to get rid of some of his shirts. But I'm thinking, you know, as I'm listening to this story, I'm thinking, this guy's got a problem. You know, we need need to get him into therapy, right? And we, you know, he did a great job with the sermon. You know, he got a a good grade, good sermon. But after the class, it was a night class, I'm driving home in my car, and I'm driving down from D.C. back home, about a 45-minute drive, and I, I have a little time to think, and I thought to myself, I wonder how many shirts I have. So a couple of days later, I go through my closet. Now, I'm a little bit older than a seminary student, so I've collected more shirts along the way. So I go into my closet, I make sure I get the numbers right, and now you're going to think I need therapy. Um, but I went in and I had 60 shirts hanging in my closet. I had 25 t-shirts in my drawers and 15 golf polos. Then I remembered there was a storage bin in my basement (laughs) that I pulled all the souvenir shirts in, you know, all the mission trip shirts and the the U2 concert shirt I got, you know, Joshua Tree Tour shirt, the old basketball teams I played on, the volleyball teams I played on, all those shirts, all those what I call mementos are stuck in a storage bin in my basement. So I go down there and I count those too. You know what my number was? It was more than 78. My total number was 138 shirts. Go home and count your shirts before you judge me. The point is, is that we accumulate stuff. I will tell you the good news is I gave a lot of that away. 
And I will tell you, if you move across country, it helps you declutter and you give even more stuff away. So we got, I got rid of a lot of shirts. I am down well under 100 now, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but that is just simply an example of how we fragment ourselves with spending, with relationship. We do that with relationships. We do that with spending. We do it with, with interest. We do it with all these things in our lives. And then we wonder why life is so complicated. But the point is, is that we don't move towards simplicity. We don't do this defragmentation of our lives to make room for more stuff or make room for more relationships or make room for more interest. We do it to make room for Christ. We do it to get more of Christ into our lives. We do it to put more of Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit into the center of our lives. That's why we do it. Because we know that living a life with Christ is better than one without Christ in our hearts, in our lives. You know, the room didn't have very much room for Jesus either, right? <laughs> That's why he ended up in a manger, in a feed trough, simply born. You know, I, I wonder, you know, we look back on the story and we say, Oh, I would have never kicked Jesus out. I would have put Jesus, Jesus would have had the best room in the house, right? Well, maybe it's because the people didn't recognize who Jesus was. I want you to imagine that tonight you get home and you're having dinner with your family, you've invited friends over, you've just had a great meal together, you've exchanged some gifts, the table hasn't been cleaned up, Right? The gifts, the wrapping papers on the floor, the kids are off on the Xbox, PlayStation, playing video games. You're sitting around with some other family members after the meal, talking in relationship, catching up on all the relationships. And then you hear a knock on the door. So you go, you get the door, thinking it's maybe going to be some Christmas carolers or, or maybe a neighbor bringing some cookies and you open up the door, and there before you stands Prince William and Kate Middleton and their newborn baby. What do you do? Do you invite them in? Yeah, it's Kate Middleton and Prince William and the baby. <laughs> right? You invite them in, and then what do you do when you recognize the royal family? When you recognize the royal family, you invite them into your house, and what do you do at your kitchen table? You declutter it. You clean it off. And what do you tell the kids playing video games? Hey, what do you tell them to do? Stop doing that interest, <laughs> right? Come in here, the royal family's here, right? And, and, and what happens to the priority of your relationships, the people you were just with around the table? Do they all of a sudden become second-class citizens? right? Not because they're not important to you, not because you don't love them anymore, but because of who has just come to the house. You see, folks, when Jesus comes, <laughs> how will we respond to the King of Kings in our lives? How will we respond when the King knocks on the door? And that's what Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. And when we let Jesus Christ in, what happens? We begin to reorder things. We begin to reprioritize our relationships. We begin to declutter our hearts and our souls. We begin to change our interests and we begin to focus them and build them around this one king of kings who is now in us. 
That's Christmas. That's Christmas. Let's pray.